In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. On occasion of this feast of the transfiguration of Jesus, we focus our attention on the Blessed Sacrament, asking him to give us the grace to take to heart the Father's mandate to listen to him, to prayerfully contemplate and study his life, and to use this singular event that is meant for us personally, as all the events of the gospel, to encourage us in our commitment to discipleship. We invoke the Holy Spirit, whose task it is to help us penetrate the life of Jesus and his words and download them in such a way that we glean a personal message and apply it to our daily lives. At face value, recalling this event of this transformation of Jesus on Mount Tabor may not give us much light for practical imitation. That is why we need to pray and invoke the light of the Holy Spirit so that this event, as is the case with all of them, deliver for us a personal message that can be put into practice. Let's reconstruct the scene. First of all, let's recall the background of Jesus' life on earth to that very point in time. For the most part, he was very ordinary, lived with a family, confined himself to a very tiny town that was left unmentioned in the Old Testament, showed up for work every day with his father, working as a carpenter. He was a manual laborer. They probably didn't specialize too much in those days, and he repaired farming instruments, fabricated furniture, repaired roofs, built houses, and so forth. It was so ordinary that the, one of the comments made while he gave a sermon in the synagogue was, he's just a carpenter, or another instance, they say, he's just the son of Mary, just the son of Joseph. His public life becomes more extraordinary, obviously, given the fact that he is giving public sermons, he's sharing the most profound insights that had ever been heard in the history of humankind. And most of all, he works extraordinary miracles, 
healing, with a mere wish, with a mere word, with a mere touch, and even bringing people back to life. Nevertheless, he was poor. He had to do a lot of walking. He needed to hide so he wouldn't be arrested. You could go to his house. You could have a conversation with him. You could have a meal with him. You'll find him at a party like Cana or Matthew's conversion party. And faith was required that he was the son of God. He had to nourish himself and rest. He had emotions. So he was also covered with the trappings of ordinary existence. He was like us, as St. Paul teaches, like us in every way except regarding sin. With one exception, the transfiguration event. The traditional writings of the church tell us that we need to look at this event in light of the future. Jesus dashes worldly hopes of the apostles by predicting a tragic future. It's tragic in the sense that our Lord's life of doing good, of revealing the greatest human heart and divine heart as well, to be rewarded with a terrible, painful death. He predicts it, the scourging, being spit upon, being insulted, and says that this will all end in victory, redemptive victory, with the resurrection from the dead. Crucifixion, no matter what period of time one reflects on it, is always a horrible and horrific way to die. But that was especially so 2,000 years ago when the Romans, to teach criminals a lesson, perfected their craft of torture and slow death, you'd be crucified. It was one of the most frightening ways to die. And so in spite of the results of this passion and death that the Lord eagerly wanted to embrace, the apostles were definitely set on edge. Jesus makes it very clear that they also need to follow him in his suffering, that to be a disciple, an indispensable condition, is to carry one's cross. In fact, the cross will be a key means to evangelize the rest of the world once the Lord leaves and sends the Holy Spirit. So one fine evening or morning, I don't know what the time of day was, the Lord, as he usually does, he headed off to the top of a mountain, mountain symbolizes commune with God. It has a divine symbolism to it. It's elevated. It's secluded. 
has a different feel than being on ground level. And he invites three apostles to immerse themselves in deep prayer. It's narrated in the Gospels that he would spend entire nights in the hills praying by himself. This time he invites these three. Peter, who's going to take over, will be the first pope. John, the one whom Jesus loved, who would lean on his chest during the Last Supper. And James, the first martyr. I don't know how long it took, but as they were praying, the Lord was completely transfigured. He was shining white, emanating bright light, surrounded with light. His divinity was overwhelming, even though we can't technically see God face to face. They saw his divinity more than his humanity. He was transformed. And the apostles found themselves in an ecstasy that prompted Peter to say, Lord, it is good that we are here. And during this event, Moses, who was the recipient of the old law, Elijah, who traditionally is considered the greatest prophet or one of the great prophets, appeared with our Lord as well. And the traditional writings of the church tell us that they were discussing the imminent passion of Jesus. What's the interpretation? What is the practical value of this? Well, there's a number of considerations. They never saw our Lord in that state, emitting light, surrounded with light, divinely present to them, until they went on top of that mountain and engaged in deep prayer. They saw another side to the face of Jesus that caused them to be riveted on the transfigured Jesus. We will see our Lord only amid prayer. Obviously, in this life, we don't see him with our actual eyes, but we do see him through our eyes of faith. We see him through our deeds of love. And that's not just a euphemism or a pious metaphor. We indeed do see him in shadows, through the light of faith, but nevertheless we see him. We see him through the eyes of our soul, through the eyes of our heart, when we are committed to protracted prayer. They didn't go up to the mountain to recite a quick vocal prayer, which also has its value. They had to make it worth their while after embarking upon that long climb, that long hike. They spend time in meditation and contemplation. 
this is an indispensable way of gazing at our Lord. We have to remind ourselves with the aid of the Holy Spirit that they only had this experience as a consequence of spending time in seclusion in deep, silent prayer. The Transfiguration offers us a disposition and a resolution. We want to commit ourselves to a protracted prayer. We want to go into seclusion and commune with Jesus in a more concentrated way. Secondly, the fathers of the church teach that the purpose of the transfiguration was to help the apostles have hope and trust in the cross. Obviously, it's much easier to trust the cross academically, reading about it, reading the truths of our faith that surround the cross. What requires much faith and trust and strength is to believe that failure, there's no such thing as failure when we follow Christ, but the raw material of the cross is at times failure, emotional strain, anxiety, physical debility, old age, sickness, experience of inadequacy, experience of tedium in prayer, misunderstanding, loneliness. I just named a few raw materials that comprise the contents of a cross. A difficulty in spreading the kingdom also is a cross where one may feel I am different in my ideals, in my beliefs, in my lifestyle, in my worldview from the great majority, perhaps from my family members, my colleagues, my friends, my acquaintances. And the fathers of the church tell us we want to hope in the cross and using an idea of St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 1, that the cross is the power of God and that the cross transforms us, transfigures us. The transfiguration is a sneak preview of the glory of the resurrection. We contemplate that once Jesus rises from the dead, it's not business as usual. You can't drive to his house. You can't find him in a certain place. He finds you. He appears, but very sparingly. And they don't recognize him because he's completely transformed. He's glorified. And they only recognize him after hanging out with him a little bit more and speaking with him. Jesus is telling us that this transfiguration, and for our intents and purposes, is an allegorical sign of holiness, of living the life of Jesus. I recall 
in my pastoral work, especially visiting the sick, how I've been so edified by very holy men and women who have embraced their cause. And I don't need a theology book. In a certain sense, I don't even need an act of faith to see the profound transformation that reflects that transfiguration. And the light and the glory take the form of humility, of compassion, of joy. And that the joy, as St. Jose Maria says in the way, the joy of the healthy animal who feels no pain and is physically at ease, content, satisfied. But the joy of someone who is a vessel of the joy of Jesus. And we need to look at Jesus in prayer so that we don't lose hope in the cross and that we love the cross. It takes faith. It takes a lot of grace. But we don't love a backache or a flat tire or a traffic jam or loss of a loved one. What we love is to identify our sufferings without exaggerating with the sufferings of Jesus. And invariably, we become transformed. And without being silly or corny, we want our family, our friends, our colleagues to recognize the goodness of Christ. And so we want, at some level, anyone who sees us, or maybe better said, sees the Christ in us, can also say, it's good that we are here. It's good that we are with someone who has that heart of Jesus. Without prayer and without that focus on the Lord, as our Holy Father says from time to time, we can run the risk of a certain ascetical or spiritual Alzheimer, where the cross is no longer cross, but a bout of pain, bad luck, an experience of an unpleasantry, raw suffering, and that's not the cross. The cross is to connect contradiction, hardship, trials, turmoil with the cross of Jesus and to believe in it and to believe in its power, the wisdom of God. Thirdly and lastly, we are commanded in a very gentle way from the cloud, God the Father makes his will known and invites the apostles who represent all of us saying, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The fruit of our prayer is to listen to Jesus, but most of all, listening to Jesus should be the contents of our prayer. I recall 
a number of conversations. I'll pick one of them, buddy of mine, was remotely contemplating converting to the Catholic faith, still is, but want to know why he should become Catholic since he's a good Christian, and indeed he is, and asked, is the Catholic faith better than mine? I said, well, you don't want to pose the question that way. I can say that we have more resources. We have the Eucharist. We have the rest of the sacraments. Uh, we have the guidance of the, the church, headed by the Holy Father. So those are our resources. And he said, well, why do I need those resources if I'm doing okay already? I said, well, it will enhance your personal relationship with Jesus and make you a more of an effective evangelizer. And I was a bit disturbed by his response. He said, this is the first time I've ever heard a Catholic saying that the sacraments will enhance a personal relationship with Jesus. And I said, all of us Catholics must aim at that. That defines what a Catholic is, this centering one's life around Jesus. It's not just religious observance, but it's union with Christ. And the Father, God the Father, is telling us this, that the contents of our prayer is to think about the words of Jesus in silence, to talk to him about his words, about his actions, about his life, to keep my eyes focused on him. And as I get transformed through prayer, by contemplating his words that are spirit in life, as I take to heart what the Father says, I see Jesus through the eyes of faith, which means as I take on his capacity to love, as I love, as he has loved, I see him. Because who is God but self-giving love? Who is Christ? The visible expression of self-giving love. God is love. And as I pray, as I pick up my cross, as I dwell on his words and feed my heart and soul with his words, in prayerful contemplation, and prayerful meditation, I become more empowered to give of myself with the very heart of Jesus. And I begin to see him. In a way, I can't see him unless I approach his self-giving love that takes the form of mercy, compassion, service correction as well. Lord, what resolution do you want me to make? Well, first, that we cultivate this disposition, that I see my Christian faith, my Catholic faith, as growing in my friendship and love for Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. And I take to heart St. Jose Maria's advice he was a popular preacher, not because he had extraordinary oratorical skills. He probably 
did have very good speaking skills. In fact, you know, seeing the movies, he certainly did. But his listeners would comment that he brought the gospel to life, that he shared insights on Jesus' words, on Jesus' teachings, and that he lived them as well. So his retreats were very much remembered even after half a century would go by. And he said that we should reconstruct those scenes and put ourselves in those scenes. And that's theologically very sound because everything the Lord did was for us personally. We wrap up this time of meditation telling our Lord that it's good to be here with him. And we want to, in a certain sense, go to Tabor every day and speak to him and contemplate him and contemplate the fruit of his cross, which is a resurrection. In this present life, the fruit of the cross is a growth in sanctity. And that the steady diet of our prayer is the words of Jesus. We go to the Blessed Mother, who most faithfully imitated her son and brought to life all his words. And she's depicted by Luke as contemplating his words and actions. Mary, pray for us so that this transfiguration fascinate us, excite us about contemplating your son's glory as a consequence of his cross and to take to heart in committed prayer his words. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help and bring them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom.